I'd like to turn, first of all, to your notes. If you go to page 39, and I want to divide this subject up into two sections. First of all, I want to teach on the key of specific signs and wonders proclaiming that the kingdom has come. The Greek word is the word simeon, and it's different to the healing gift and even to remarkable obvious miracles of healing. They are signs sent by God. And it was the major way in which God testified to his son. Amen? Jesus said in John chapter 14, if you cannot believe me for the words, then believe me for the works. Because the works testify of me. The reason that Nicodemus came to Jesus was not because he was convinced by his teaching, nor was he uh, originally willing to receive his theology. In fact, what Jesus said blew everything apart that he had believed in for his whole life, and which he'd been teaching very effectively for years. But he had the integrity of heart to say, no man can do the things that you do unless God's with you. Now that was the bottom line. So he, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, got delivered out of the imprisonment of extreme Jesus, God-hating Judaism. Did you hear what I said there? Not because Jesus persuaded him by his arguments, but Jesus uh, zapped him by the power of signs and wonders and miracles. 18 times in the New Testament, Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. He was known as the Nazarene. And all the other guys that didn't want to receive what was powerfully being demonstrated through the life of Jesus, they got hold of a proof text which said that Messiah comes out of Bethlehem. And you find that again and again in the New Testament. Now, Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem. He did fulfill the scriptures, but somehow it got lost, and no one knew that because he grew up and lived in Nazareth. Everybody, it seemed, had forgotten that, or did not know that he went down to Bethlehem during the time of the taxation, was born there, and his parents came back again to Nazareth. Now, the interesting thing is that Jesus never once took the trouble to enlighten them about where he was really born. He never once said, oh, by the way, you all call me the Nazarene, but by the way, I was born in Bethlehem. Because he thought, if that's their mindset, whatever I say, they'll find some other proof text to hang on to, not to believe. Can you hear what I'm saying? So I want us to warn us against the danger of proof texts. Because I believe God's going to move in these days into all kinds of new things which we've never seen before, we've never heard before. And they're going to shake the very foundations of many of our theological positions. And all I'm appealing for is not to believe everything, but to test these things to whether they be of God. For my own sake, let me give you this as an illustration. I was brought up in one of those sort of sectors of the church that had a very, very, very low view of women, even to the point of head covering. Eileen and I were once in that business and, and she was to be silent and everything else. And gradually, not by the persuasive words of biblical arguments, but by just seeing God use women, I thought to myself, like Nicodemus, they couldn't do what they're doing unless God was with them. 
So it was the anointing evidently upon their lives and the fact that God was powerfully using them which made me go back and reconsider whether my theology was correct. And God's brought me on a long journey and I'm not going to go into all the detail of it but I found that the, the, the safety is to recognise where God is work, working and give him the credit. Now the, the scribes and the Pharisees said no prophet comes out of Nazareth. We don't care what he does, how many he raises from the dead, how many miracles he worked. See, no prophet comes out of Nazareth. We've got a proof text. And that clinging to a proof text rather than facing the obvious evidence of our eyes is an unbiblical way to hold our doctrine. Can you hear what I'm saying? But Nicodemus was the only guy in that company, he was known as the teacher of Israel. He was the guy that was considered to be the expert Bible teacher among all the Bible teachers. And the thing that saved him was an honesty of heart that said, no man can do these things unless God is with him. So he went to Jesus by night because he didn't want the other people seeing him and there Jesus got him to the basic fact, look Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. So every miracle was an attesting sign by God to the fact of who Jesus is. There's not a, 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 there's not a church in the Bible that was planted except through the power of signs and wonders and miracles. You find it again and again through Scripture. I could turn through all the Scriptures, but I don't really have time. But you go through it, you'll find that, that everywhere, it was the, it, Paul says, I fully preached the Gospel, Romans chapter 15, verse 18, from Jerusalem as far round as Illyricum by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. If he wasn't moving in all that power, he wouldn't consider himself an adequate preacher of the Gospel. Every church he planted was planted in, with signs and wonders and miracles. Now, John, the apostle, when he comes to write his gospel, which was written considerably later than the other gospels, the first three synoptic gospels were written somewhere between AD 52 and AD, uh, AD 65. And then there's a 30-year gap, approximately, before John writes his gospel. He, the gospel of John was written round about AD 95. Matthew is primarily writing to reach the Jews. Mark is primarily writing to reach the Romans. And Luke is primarily writing to reach the Greek world. John wrote to reach the church because a new phenomenon had appeared. By the time John comes to write his gospel, we've got second and third generation Christians. People who have been born in a Christian family have had the teaching of their parents and possibly even their grandparents, but in that generational transmission, they've lost the fire and the passion that their grandfathers or their parents had. So John is dealing with a new phenomenon called nominal Christianity. He's also dealing with a new phenomenon called Gnosticism, which I haven't time to go into this morning. And so what John is writing is he's writing to those who are somewhat Christianized. That's why all his material is largely different to the material used by Matthew, Mark and Luke. He's writing to people that he's assumed have already read the first three Gospels and already know the stories. And then John takes eight miracles of Jesus and he calls them signs. And these eight miracles are like the skeleton on which he then builds the whole Gospel of John. 
And the reason he chooses these particular signs is twofold. Number one, they are mighty signs which testify clearly to who Jesus is, but each one of them is saying something much deeper and more profound than simply the great miracle. And the key to understanding John's gospel is to read the teaching around the miracle because the miracle is put there as a powerful allegorical illustration of the word that's being taught. So what I want you to see is that God's bearing witness to his word by the power of signs and wonders and miracles. I mentioned this to you yesterday, I'll, I'll say it again today. The difference between the kingdom and John the Baptist Christianity is that the kingdom is forcefully advanced by signs and wonders and miracles. And John the Baptist Christianity just needs good teaching. It does produce some results and praise God for those results, but it's not the power by which the kingdom is advanced. And when great demonic principalities come against John the Baptist or John the Baptist Christians, they collapse, they do not resist and overcome and continue to forcefully advance the kingdom. Everybody in the kingdom who was thrown into jail praised their way out or prayed their way out of jail. Amen? Think about that. When the John the Baptist was thrown into jail, he just gave up and became disappointed and, and was finally beheaded and never ever came back into ministry. Now, everyone who forcefully advances the kingdom is going to meet a prison situation. I don't, I don't mean literally. I mean you're going to be shut in by demonic opposition until you feel as if you're in a prison. You'll go so far and you won't be able to go any farther because the demonic powers and principalities have noticed, have noticed the fact... <laughs> They've noticed the fact that you're building something with a kingdom smell about it. And so they come against it. And there will come a period where you'll be shut in. It could be a financial prison. It could be a facilities building prison. It could be all kinds of things. You could be that, that your praise and worship leader gets mad at you and walks off and you lose your praise and worship. It could be a division in the leadership prison. Now, what will determine your future is whether you have kingdom power to break out of that prison. See, once again, let's look at Peter, Acts chapter 12. He's thrown into prison. He's, everybody, including himself, is expecting to be executed the next day. And as he's lying there in peaceful resignation to the inevitability of his execution, which you could mistake as a great victory. After all, this guy's not sweating with fear. He's resigned to his death and he's going to accept it you know, in, with victory and courage. Oh, what a, what a tremendous victory. But it's totally wrong if it's not of God. So you have to know when it's time to be passive in the dealings of God and when it's time to be active against the attacks of the devil. You have to know which is which. Now in that situation, an angel comes and slaps Peter on the side and says, get up. 
You see, the reason I know that it was wrong for Peter to submit to death was because of the prophecy that had been put on his life. When Jesus met him at the lakeside in John chapter 21, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, there's a day coming when they're going to take you where you don't want to go and they're going to clothe you in a way that you don't want to be clothed. And he uses this word, um, a, a word which we get our English word geriatrics from. When you are old, really senile, <laughs> when you're a geriatric, this is going to happen to you. So Jesus, he said, and, and your death is going to glorify God. So now here's Peter in Herod's prison in his mid-40s. and He's not finished his ministry, but the devil shut him up into prison. There's been a terrible attack against his ministry, a terrible attack against the, the door that God had opened for him. But the devil shut it and said, that's the end of you. You're never going to break out again into a meaningful ministry. And that, some of you here in this meeting this morning and some of the churches that you represent, that's exactly where you are. And Peter, in the pressure of his circumstances, let go of the prophetic word that he'd already received. And it, it came from no one other than Jesus. So from that prophetic word, he ought to have known perfectly well this wasn't the time to die, this was the time to fight. And the angel said, get up! Now, the interesting thing is that the angel didn't do any miracles. The angel didn't come like in the Cinderella story and just go, boom, and Peter's chains fell off and he suddenly was anointed. No, all the angel did was to speak words to him. What made those words miraculously powerful was that when Peter obeyed them, the angel said, get up. Nothing happened until Peter got up. When he got up, the chains fell off. The angel said, follow me. The angel, before he said that, told him to put on his clothes and this tremendous allegorical symbolism in all these things, which I have not time to deal with this morning, but there are tapes on this. I know I've covered this in ministries, and there must be tapes available. There's tapes available on everything. But everything that Peter had to do, put on his clothing, put on the mantle, put on the shoes, it's powerfully allegorical of preparing a man for a city-taking ministry. But I tell you, you will never take a city until you've learned how to break out of prison. Hear me. There will come a time when you and your ministry will be shut up in a demonic prison and if you don't know how to break out and come out as the victor, you'll never become a city-taking man and it will never become a city-taking ministry. And signs and wonders are a powerful part of that ability. So Peter, as the angel spoke to him, did the things that were being told to him, and then he followed the angel. As he walked towards these doors of impossibility, they opened of themselves until finally he came to the iron gate. The iron gate is a particular obstruction which to you seems totally, totally impossible. And then it says, as he walked to the iron gate, the door opened by itself. Another interesting thing is this, that it says that while Peter was doing this, it did not seem to him that it was real. He was just obeying the word without any sense 
of that word being powerful or effective. He was just obeying the word doggedly in spite of what he seemed to be feeling. He said, hey, this is just a dream. This ain't real. I'm still in prison. I'm still chained up and I'm going to die tomorrow, but I'll keep walking on the word anyway. And as he followed the angel, walking on the word with a total sense of unreality, an unrealness about what he was doing, then it says he came out into the city, and then he says, he says the gate opened, and he, the gate opened to the city. And then he said, listen, the gate opened to the city. And then he said, now I know. Now I know. So all that walk from total bondage with death hanging over him to the liberty of the city, all that walk was a walk of faith where it all the time seemed to be totally unreal. And only when he stepped through the iron gate and into the city, he said, hey, this is real. It's interesting because, you see, Let's say this, I don't know which day of the week this happened, I really haven't bothered to try and work it out, but let's say this, all I know is this, that on, let's say, Monday of that week, Herod seemed all-powerful, Herod had all the resources, Herod had all the money, Herod had all the soldiers, Herod had the military power, Herod had the political power, Herod had everything, and all little Peter had was nothing or no one but God. In human terms, it was impossible. But at the end of the week, as you read on in the end of Acts 12, Herod began to prance around as if he was God, and people began to worship like God. God struck him dead. So at the end of the week, Herod was dead, and Peter was free. Amen? A total transformation of the situation. At the beginning of the week, Herod was all-powerful, and Peter was a prisoner about to be executed. At the end of the week, Herod was dead, and Peter was free. And Peter went on for approximately another 25 years in powerful, effective ministry, and finally died on time exactly the way that Jesus said he would. He died in a way that glorified God, and when that time came, he knew it was the time. You read Second Peter, you realize this guy is facing death, and the change of passing from, from earth to heaven, he said, I'm going to put off this earthly tabernacle, like you and I might talk about changing your shirt. It was a total non-event. Now, in the notes, I've taken each one of these eight signs and given you an outline of what they represent. And I'm not going to have time to even begin to deal with them this morning. I want you to move on with me in your notes. But there are eight of them, and you can look at them. Now, I want to come to page 41. And I just want to read some statements here on page 41. Jesus began his ministry by casting out demons and healing all the sick who were brought to him. When he sent out the 12 in Luke 9 and then the 70 in Luke 10, he gave them authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick and told them to declare that the kingdom of God had come near. He further gave them authority over all the power of the enemy and promised them 
that nothing by any means will be able to hurt them. This is the only recorded occasion that we read of Jesus rejoicing in spirit and declaring that he saw Satan cast down from heaven. The day the church was born, it began its life with a miracle and continued to flow in the same vein. In this way, it broke through every obstacle and triumphed over every opposition. Back to Acts chapter 4. Facing fierce opposition once again, the church asked for boldness to speak God's word and that by the means of signs, wonders and miracles, that they might be done in the name of Jesus. When Isaiah saw wickedness and darkness on every side in the midst of an apostate people who were seeking wizards and witches and paying homage to the spirit of death instead of paying homage to the living God, he cried out in Isaiah 8, chapter, 7, verse, chapter 8, verse 17, What are you going to do, Lord? And the spirit of Christ, in anticipation of his incarnation, cried out, I and the children whom the Lord has given me we are for signs and wonders in Israel. So what are we for? Are you one of the children that God's given to Jesus? Are you in this category? So what are we for? And what did Jesus say in John chapter 14 and verse 12? The works that I do, you will do also. And I want you to notice that in the power, miracle life of Jesus, there's a very, very close connection with prayer. You find that particularly in Luke's Gospel. You go to Luke 5, Jesus is deeply in prayer. And then we read that the power of the Lord was present to heal. You go to Luke 6, Jesus spends the night in prayer. And then we read that power flowed out of him to, to heal many. You find that prayer and the power to heal are in, absolutely connected together. So I want your morning prayer time to become a time of being charged with the power of God so that you can go out and give what you've got to needy people and they're going to get healed. He said, the, work, the works that you do, I'm going to, uh, the works that I do, you are going to do, and even greater works than these you're going to do because I go to the Father. When he sent them out, he said, if you lay your hands on the sick, they will recover. That's what he said, wasn't it? And I could go on and on and on and on with this. Now what I want to do now is to give you three principles to move into miraculous. They're not on your notes, but I just want to give them to you. Again, I want to learn these things from Peter. Peter's such a wonderful model of all these things. And I want you to get, if, if Peter could get there, so can I. Because that's, that's, that's why he's always our example. Come to, Hebrew, to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Saul has just been powerfully converted by their prayers. And he's now preaching Christ. Now come to verse 32. It came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Jesus said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed, and he arose immediately. 
So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, uh, listen to what Peter says. He says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Principle number one is that you have got to become utterly convinced concerning who lives in you. It's not just simply a theology, but for you it's a burning reality that the almighty risen Jesus Christ has taken your human body and it actually indwells it. Are you convinced about that? Who lives in you? Who lives in you? Amen. You go to, to John chapter 14 and you will find that Jesus tells the apostles, the, 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 I suppose it was the apostles actually, and he says, look, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. You're not going to be fatherless because if you love me and keep my commandments, then the Father and I, we will come and we will make our home with you. And he said, I'm going to send another helper, the, another, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit. He said, he's with you, but he's going to be in you. He's with you in the person of Jesus Christ. You've got close enough to him to know what he's like because he's the motivation of all the miracles that I do. It's the Spirit of God that casts out demons. It's the Spirit of God that heals. Or, in John's Gospel, talking about the same events, he says, it's the Father. The Father in me, he does the works. That's what he said. Amen? I don't do them of myself. So he's saying, look, the way that I lived in total availability to the Holy Spirit and to the Father, they both came and lived in me and I gave them complete access to my humanity and through my humanity, all these mighty works took place. He said, now you're going to go and do exactly the same thing, except you're going to have the Trinity, not, not, not just the duality of them. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Do they live inside you or don't they? What can they do through your humanity? Anything they could do through Jesus' humanity. In fact, greater works than this. Now, Peter was aware of that. It wasn't just teaching that he forgot about when it came to practicalities. I mean, he, he stood in front of Aeneas, this total physical impossibility, and he says, now, to Jesus, this is a pushover. And the Jesus in me is no different to the Jesus that I saw walking around the streets of Galilee and Judea and doing these wonderful things. Through me, he can just continue his ministry. In fact, when Luke writes the, the book of Acts, he said this book of Acts is just chapter two of what Jesus continued to do and preach. In other words, Jesus died on the cross and came alive again on the day of resurrection, entered into his church, which was a much bigger opportunity for him to continue to do his works. He saw the church as his day of fullness and he saw his earthly life as the days of his constriction. So now I'm just going to give you a, a, some little stories of how Jesus continued to do and to teach. And here's Peter, a living, he said, he said, he said, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And so, key number one is to really believe that. That when I'm looking at someone with cancer, I'm not thinking, oh dear, that's tough. 
And I'm thinking, dear Lord, that's a pushover for you. You've dealt with this spirit millions of times. It's never ever been able to beat you. You've beaten it every time. So I'm just releasing my humanity to be the instrument for you to do it again. Jesus Christ heals you. The Holy Spirit in me casts out this demon. The Father in me continues to do his works. You can use whatever terminology you like, but it's the same terminology, basically. That's number one. You've got to know not only who God is, but who God is in you, or if you like, God know who you are. I'm a man, I'm a woman, indwelt by the triune God. They live in me, and through me, they're capable of doing anything that God's capable of doing. So I'm ready for anything. It's no sweat, it's not my effort, it's not my power, it's not my holiness, it's simply from beginning to end, Almighty God. That's principle number one. Principle number two, come to Acts chapter three, please. If you go on, Peter then raises someone who's dead, and he does it exactly the same way that Jesus did. Come to Acts chapter three. He comes to the gate called Beautiful at the temple. And there's a man, there's a beggar there, who was lame from his mother's womb, we're told. He's carried there every day to beg. And seeing Peter and John, verse 3, about to go into the temple, he asks of them for a gift. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give it to you. What I do have, I give it to you. What's he got? Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit. I haven't got money, but I've got the triune God. And see, that ought to make some difference. But you see, here's a key, which is very hard to explain verbally, but, but what Peter did was, there was a, an action of faith, which wasn't so much anything physical, but it was, it was something in his spirit where he gave them what he had. And I, I find it ever so hard to put into words, but you have to learn that. You see, as I've said a number of times, you don't find Jesus, you don't find Peter, or anybody in the Bible, you don't find them praying for people to be healed. Because they have a prayer life and they have a relationship with the triune God which makes healing an immediate powerful reality. And so what they do is they just give them what they've got. You have to learn that. It's hard to teach it in words. I don't know how to express it. But I remember years ago I was in a conference with uh, one of these great, great great healing ministries. And I remember that when, and he had several people helping him because it was a conference with thousands of people. He had several people helping him and lots of people had come forward and he had some of his assistants praying for people. But as he was watching one of these assistants, who will, will say his name was John, he was watching the way that he was praying for people. And he said, he said, John, he said, John, don't just pray for them, give them something. That's key number two. What I have, I give it to you. It, it's, a, it's an act 
Oh, it's an activity of the spirit and of faith where what you have, you release it to them and in the power of God Hitman, if you just pray for people, it don't happen. That's all I know. Now, I find it hard to put into words, but I'm telling you, the spirit of God is anxious to teach you and train you how to do this. That's principle number two. Give them what you have. Now we come to principle number three. And I suppose I would put this in a, in a word, is you have to be trained by God to walk like Jesus. And I don't know any other way than to go through a period of pain where you see disappointment and embarrassment, but if you push through this period of pain where it doesn't seem like you're getting anywhere, you'll come out the other side having a healing ministry. You may have heard <clears throat> the testimony of John Wimber. I heard it years ago when he started to try and move into the miraculous. He said for the first year or so, because he could see it in the Word, it was totally convinced that it was real, but when he tried to do the healings or be the healer, he said all I saw was absolutely nothing. In fact, all I did was to catch the diseases of the people that I was praying for. <laughs> and I think it was, he said it was about a year when breakthrough came. Now, in, in the natural, when a baby's born and it grows to, say, six or seven months, something like that, it starts to crawl around. And because it's of that age, it's happy crawling around on its hands and knees. But when it gets to about 11 months to one year old, it starts to notice something. It notices that its daddy isn't walking around like that. And its elder brothers and sisters are not walking around like that, but they're doing something, they're walking on their two feet. And he thinks, oh, that looks cool. I'm going to try and do that. And so one day you come into the room and there's little Johnny, no longer on his hands and knees, but he's, he's hanging on to a chair or a table and he's going, da, da, da. And he, oh, look! Little Johnny's trying to walk. Now, have you ever seen a loving father behave like this? He walks into the room, sees little Johnny trying to walk, says, Johnny, who do you think you are? A grown-up, an adult or something? You get down on your hands and knees where you belong. Have you ever seen a loving father behave that way? What does he do? He says, oh, come, come to daddy, come to daddy. He does all he can to get him to take the first step. And if it's a loving elder brother, he will behave the same way. Amen? Everybody's trying to encourage Johnny to take his... Come on, Johnny, you can do it. We'll help you. No, yeah. And then, then he takes his first step, falls flat on his face. He's got a big bruise. Didn't work. I fell flat on my face. Right, that's the end of walking. I'm never going to try that again. No, but you see, there's something inside him that's compelling him to go back have you ever seen a little toddler, I'm sorry, not a toddler, a little baby walking on his hands and knees, have you ever seen any of them get up and just start walking the first time? No, they all fall flat on their face many, many times, but there's something inside them that says, I was born, I was created to walk like my dad and to walk like my elder brother. 
And if it kills me, I'm going to learn how to do it. And that next period of maybe three months or so is pretty painful. There's bruises and bumps and there's many failures and not much success. But eventually, little Johnny gets it. He starts to walk. And before long, he's so confident in his walking that if you don't stop him, he'll walk all over the walls and the ceiling. <laughs> now that's principle number three. Principle number three is you have to learn to walk. You've got to believe the scripture that says, I and the children that the Lord has given me, we are for signs and wonders in the earth. That's what we're for. You've got to believe the scripture, John chapter 14, verse 12. The works that I do, you're going to do, and greater works than these you're going to do because I'm going to the Father. You've got to believe them enough to believe them more than your immediate experience. Hello. If you go to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6, it says this. Those that say they abide in him. How many of you abide in Jesus? Just raise your hands. You see, yeah? you see, it's him living in you, it's you living in him. That's the key. Those that say that they abide in him, they ought also to walk even as he walked. That's what it says. So how did Jesus walk? In signs and wonders and miracles. How are we supposed to walk? In signs and wonders and miracles. It's all over the scripture below. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6 says this. It says, as you have received the Lord Jesus Christ, so walk ye in him. How did you receive Jesus Christ? Come on, how did you receive Jesus Christ? By faith. How do you walk in him? By faith. And I guarantee that if you will make a decision at the end of this conference that you're going to walk out from here and you're going to walk into a ministry of signs and wonders and miracles and if you have your first stab at it and you fall flat on your face but you get up, you have your fifth stab at it, your sixth, your tenth, and keep getting up, there will come a time when you will walk as Jesus walked. You're going to do it? You're going to be it? You're not going to give in to disappointments and apparent failure. You just come back at it again and again and say, look, I believe this stuff. It has to work for me because I'm one of his children. It has to work to me because the word of God is yea and amen in Christ Jesus. It's for me. Now this is one of the most powerful kingdom advancing keys. And it's the mightiest weapon in God's weaponry against the deceiving spirits of witchcraft, of occultism, the spirit of Islam, of Freemasonry. You'll find that Freemasons are riddled with every kind of sickness. If you can move in signs and wonders and miracles, they will turn to Jesus Christ in their hundreds. The thing that God said to me two years ago when he anointed me at a new level, and there are progressions in this. If you are faithful in much, what are you going to do? Give you more. 
So if you're all the time reaching out to, to be more and to do more, and the bumps and bruises are not going to deter you. I tell you, I've seen some amazing miracles, but I've also had, also had some spectacular failures. I can't explain them. I can't say why it didn't work there, but it did work there. But I tell you, that's not stopping me. I'm going on. I have not yet, and I cannot yet say, like Peter could say, like Paul could say, like Jesus could say, I held, God used me and through me healed every one of them. I haven't got there yet, but I'm getting there. I know the problem is not God. I know the problem is me. But in this particular meeting, I received a new level of anointing and I received a new anger from God against the spirit of cancer and what it was doing. In that same meeting, God spoke to me about AIDS and what it was doing. I mean, it's devastating Africa right now. It's unbelievable, the misery and the suffering that's come to that great nation. It's, it's, the, it's taking out the virulent age group from, say, 20 through to 40. It's a terrible demonic chorus that has to be broken. And I'm not trusting the medical profession to find an, an antidote. I tell you, the power of God is, is, the, is the power that we need. With repentance and with a change of lifestyle, that thing is dead in the water. And God said to me that he said that he's going to release a new power to bring healing to AIDS victims, to people who are dying of AIDS in the United States of America, and in this way, we're going to have mighty invasions into the gay lesbian world, and we're going to find that the power of delivering them and setting them free in the name of Jesus is going to be the biggest way to transform that community from a demonized community into a Jesus-loving community who are going to join us in the kingdom of God. Everybody that I've been able to pray for with AIDS who has first repented of their lifestyle, every one of them is totally healed today. But I can't wait to get at them in hundreds. Amen? When you think of what's happening in Kenya, what's happening... I've talked some years ago now to the chief medical officer of the army of Zimbabwe. He was a Christian... And he told me, he said that the Zimbabwean, Zimbabwean army, the soldiers in the Zimbabwe army are 97% HIV positive. He said, we bury between 40 and 60 soldiers every week who've died of AIDS. Just outside, well, in the city of Harare alone, there are between 20 and 40,000 AIDS orphans. Their parents have both died of AIDS and all of these kids are HIV positive and they're in homes tragically waiting to die at five, six and seven years of age. I hate the devil and his words. Oh, that God will release the power. Just imagine being so anointed that like Peter you can just walk through a whole, well let's say a whole orphanage for these kids and, you, and just, just touch them and they're all healed. Oh man. We've got to break through, we've got to learn.
It's the biggest key to advancing the kingdom. The church in Indonesia was insignificant in the year 1960. I may have said this before, I think I have, but it doesn't matter, I'm going to repeat it. In 1960, the Christians in Indonesia were statistically insignificant, which means there weren't, there were just a few Christians here and there. But God began to move through one man who, who was led by God just to walk out into his community and heal in the name of Jesus. It started a movement of God, and he, he said this in 1966. I was at a conference we were sharing together. He said, in the last 18 months, 250,000 Muslims have turned to Jesus Christ because of the signs and wonders and miracles. Now today in Indonesia, the church is approaching 20% of the population. There's persecution, they're being killed, they're being harassed in every way, but I tell you, God's coming back with ever-increasing power of signs and wonders and miracles. A godly bishop of the church in Pakistan said this years ago when I was in India. It must have been in the 60s. He said, we preached the accurate word of the gospel of Jesus Christ to Muslims for decades. And we have to be honest and say that it's had very little effect. He said, we need now to pray that God will confirm his word by signs and wonders and miracles, and then and only then we will see the power of the kingdom invading the Islamic world. Now, what a tremendous thing to say, how true it is. It's not enough for us to say, oh Lord, you do it and we'll rejoice. He says, no, I'll get inside you and I'll do it through you. I want you to be this powerful key of the kingdom. Will you let me train you, equip you, and empower you to be a scriptural kingdom Christian in Jesus' mighty name? Amen?